Section six of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section six The General's Bluff. Part two. Gray Fox heap savvy, said she to Mr. Long. He heap get up in the morning. That's what he does, Sarah. Yes, no give soldier high a Sunday. A holiday. No, no, assented Mr. Long. Gray Fox go tete. Trot. Maybe he catch Egante. Maybe he put him in Skookum House. Prison. Suggested Sarah. Oh, no, lor. Egante good injun. White father he feed him. Give him heap clothes, said Mr. Long. Ah, drawled Sarah dubiously, and rode by herself. You'll need watching, muttered Jack Long. The trumpet sounded, the troopers swung into their saddles, and the line of march was taken up as before, Crook at the head of the column, his ragged fur collar turned up, his corduroy stuffed inside a wrinkled pair of boots, the shotgun balanced across his saddle, and nothing to reveal that he was any one in particular, unless you saw his face. As the morning grew bright and empty, silent Idaho glistened under the clear blue, the general talked a little to Captain Glenn. Egante will have crossed Snake River, I think, said he. I shall try to do that to-day, but we must be easy on those horses of yours. We ought to be able to find these Indians in three days. If I were a lusty young chief, said Glenn, I should think it pretty tough to be put on a reservation for dipping a couple of kittens in the molasses. So should I, Captain, but next time he might dip Mrs. Daly, and I'm not sure he didn't have a hand in more serious work. Didn't you run across his tracks anywhere this summer? No, sir, he was over on the Deschutes. Did you hear what he was doing? Having rows about fish and game with those warm-spring Indians on the west side of the Deschutes. They're always poaching on each other. There's bad blood between Eegante and Uma Pine. Uma Pine's friendly, sir, isn't he? Well, that's a question, said Crook. But there's no question about this Eegante and his Paiutes. We've got to catch him. I'm sorry for him. He doesn't see why he shouldn't hunt anywhere as his fathers did. I shouldn't see that either. How strong is this band reported, sir? I've heard nothing I can set reliance upon, said Crook, instinctively leveling his shotgun at a big bird that rose. Then he replaced the piece across his saddle and was silent. Now. Captain Glenn had heard there were three hundred Indians with Egante, which was a larger number than he had been in the habit of attacking with forty men. But he felt discreet about volunteering any information to the general after last night's exhibition of what the general knew. Crook partly answered what was in Glenn's mind. This is the only available force I have, said he. We must do what we can with it. You found out by this time, Captain, that rapidity in following Indians up often works well. 
They have made up their minds, that is, if I know them, that we're going to loaf inside Boise Barracks until the hard weather lets up. Captain Glenn had thought so, too, but he did not mention this, and the general continued, I find that most people entertained this notion, he said, and I'm glad they did, for it will help my first operations very materially. The captain agreed that there was nothing like a false impression for assisting the efficacy of military movements, and presently the general asked him to command a halt. It was high noon, and the sun gleamed on the brass trumpet as the long note blew. Again the musical strain sounded on the cold, bright stillness, and the double line of twenty legs swung in a simultaneous arc over the horses' backs as the men dismounted. "'We'll noon here,' said the general. And while the cook broke the ice on Boise River to fill his kettles, Crook went back to the mules to see how the sore backs were standing the march. "'How do you do, Jack Long?' said he. "'Your stock is traveling pretty well, I see.' They're loaded with thirty days' rations, but I trust we're not going to need it all. Well, General, I don't specially cure myself about eating the whole outfit. Mr. Long showed his respect for the General by never swearing in his presence. I see you haven't forgotten how to pack, Crook said to him. Can we make Snake River today, Jack? That'll be forty miles, General. Days are pretty short. "'What are you feeding to the animals?' Crook inquired. "'Why, General, you know just as well's me,' said Jack, grinning. "'I suppose I do, if you say so, Jack. Ten pounds first ten days, five pounds next ten, and you're out of grain for the next ten. Is that the way still?' "'That's the way, General, on these year thirty-day affairs.' Through all this small talk, Crook had been inspecting the mules and the horses on picket line, and silently forming his conclusion. He now returned to Captain Glenn and shared his mess-box. They made Snake River. Crook knew better than long what the animals could do, and next day they crossed, again by starlight, turned for a little way up the Owyhee, decided that Iigante had not gone that road, trailed up the bluffs and ledges from the Snake Valley on to the barren height of land, and made for the Malheur River, finding the eight hoofs of two deer lying in a melted place where a fire had been. Mr. Daly had insisted that at least fifty Indians had drunk his liniment and trifled with his cats. Indeed, at times during his talk with General Cook, the old gentleman had been sure that there were a hundred. If this were their trail, which the command had now struck, there may possibly have been eight. It was quite evident that the chief had not taken any three hundred warriors upon that visit, if he had that number anywhere. So the column went up the Maller main stream, through the sagebrush and the gray weather. It was still cold, but no sun any more these last two days, and coming to the north fork, turned up towards the spur of the mountains and Castle Rock. The water ran smooth black between its edging of ice, thick, white, and crusted like slabs of coconut candy, and there in the hollow of a bend they came suddenly upon what they sought. Stems of smoke, faint and blue, 
spindled up from a blurred acre of willow thicket, dense, tall as two men, a netted brown and yellow mesh of twigs and stiff wintry rods. Out from the level of their close, nature-woven tops rose at distances the straight, slight blue smoke lines, marking each the position of some invisible lodge. The whole acre was a bottom ploughed at some former time by a washout, and the troops looked down on it from the edge of the higher ground, silent in the quiet gray afternoon, the empty sagebrush territory stretching a short way to fluted hills that were white below and blackened with pines above. The general, taking a rough chance as he often did, sent ground scouts forward and ordered a charge instantly to catch the savages unready. And the stiff rods snapped and tangled between the beating hoofs. The horses plunged at the elastic edges of this excellent fortress, sometimes half-lifted as a bent willow levered up against their bellies, and the forward-tilting men fended their faces from the whipping twigs. They could not wedge a man's length into that pliant labyrinth, and the general called them out. They rallied among the sagebrush above, Crook's cheeks and many others painted with purple lines of blood, hardened already and cracking like enamel. The baffled troopers glared at the thicket. Not a sign nor a sound came from in there. The willows, with the gentle tints of winter veiling their misty twigs, looked serene and even innocent, fitted to harbor birds, not birds of prey, and the quiet smoke threaded upwards through the air. Of course, the liniment drinkers must have heard the noise. "'What do you suppose they're doing?' inquired Glenn. "'Looking at us,' said Crook. "'I wish we could return the compliment,' said the captain. Crook pointed. Had any wind been blowing, what the general saw would have been less worth watching. Two willow branches shook, making a vanishing ripple on the smooth surface of the treetops. The pack-train was just coming in sight over the rise, and Crook immediately sent an orderly with some message. More willow branches shivered an instant and were still. Then, while the general and the captain sat on their horses and watched, the thicket gave up its secret to them. For as little light gusts coming abreast over a lake travel and touch the water, so in different spots the level maze of twigs was stirred, and if the eye fastened upon any one of these, it could have been seen to come out from the center towards the edge, successive twigs moving, as the tops of long grass tremble and mark the progress of a snake. During a short while this increased greatly, the whole thicket moving with innumerable tracks. Then everything ceased, with the blue wands of smoke rising always into the quiet afternoon. "'Can you see him?' said Glenn. "'Not a bit. Did you happen to hear anyone give an estimate of this band?' Glenn mentioned his tale of the three hundred. It was not new to the general, but he remarked now that it must be pretty nearly correct, and his eye turned a moment upon his forty troopers waiting there, grim and humorous, for they knew that the thicket was looking at them, and it amused their American minds 
to wonder what the old man was going to do about it. "'It's his bet, and he holds poor cards,' murmured Specimen Jones, and the neighbors grinned. And here the old man continued the play that he had begun when he sent the orderly to the pack-train. That part of the command had halted in consequence, disposed itself in an easy-going way, half in, half out of sight on the ridge, and men and mules looked entirely careless. Glenn wondered, but no one ever asked the general questions, in spite of his amiable voice and countenance. He now sent for Sarah the squaw. "'You tell Egante, he said, that I am not going to fight with his people unless his people make me. I am not going to do them any harm, and I wish to be their friend. The White Father has sent me. Ask Egante if he has heard of Gray Fox. Tell him Gray Fox wishes Egante and all his people to be ready to go with him to-morrow at nine o'clock.' And Sarah, standing on the frozen bank, pulled her green shawl closer, and shouted her message faithfully to the willows. Nothing moved or showed, and Crook, riding up to the squaw, held his hands up as a further sign to the flag of peace that had been raised already. "'Say that I am Gray Fox,' said he. On that there was a moving in the bushes farther along, and going opposite that place with the squaw, Crook and Glenn saw a narrow entrance across which some few branches reached that were now spread aside for three figures to stand there. Egante said Sarah eagerly. "'See him big man,' she added to Crook, pointing. A tall and splendid buck, gleaming with colors and rich with fringe and buckskin, watched them. He seemed to look at Sarah, too. She, being ordered, repeated what she had said, but the chief did not answer. "'He is counting our strength,' said Glenn. "'He's done that some time ago,' said Crook. "'Tell Egante,' he continued to the squaw, "'that I will not send for more soldiers than he sees here. I do not wish anything but peace unless he wishes otherwise.' Sarah's musical voice sounded again from the bank and Egante watched her intently till she was finished. This time he replied at some length. He and his people had not done any harm. He had heard of Gray Fox often. All his people knew Gray Fox was a good man and would not make trouble. There were some flies that stung a man sitting in his house when he had not hurt them. Gray Fox would not hurt any one till their hand was raised against him first. Egante and his people had wondered why the horses made so much noise just now. He and his people would come to-morrow with Gray Fox. And then he went inside the thicket again, and the willows looked as innocent as ever. Crook and the captain rode away. "'My speech was just a little weak coming on top of a charge of cavalry,' the general admitted, and that fellow put his finger right on the place. "'I'll give you my notion, Captain. If I had said we had more soldiers behind the hill, like as not this squaw of ours would have told him I lied. She's an uncertain quantity, I find. But I told him the exact truth, that I had no more, and he won't believe it, and that's what I want. 
So Glenn understood. The pack train had been halted in a purposely exposed position, which would look to the Indians as if another force was certainly behind it, and every move was now made to give an impression that the forty were only the advance of a large command. Crook pitched his A-tent close to the Red Men's village, and the troops went into camp regardlessly near. The horses were turned out to graze ostentatiously unprotected, so that the people in the thicket should have every chance to notice how secure the white men felt. The mules pastured comfortably over the shallow snow that crushed as they wandered among the sage-bush, and the square bell hung once more from the neck of the leader and tankled upon the hill. The shelter-tents littered the flat above the washout, and besides the cook-fire others were built irregularly far down the Malheur North Fork, shedding an extended glimmer of deceit. It might have been the camp of many hundred. A little blaze shone comfortably on the canvas of Crook's tent, and Sergeant Kaiser, being in charge of camp, had adopted the troop cook-fire for his camp-guard after the cooks had finished their work. The willow thicket below grew black and mysterious, and quiet fell on the white camp. By eight the troopers had gone to bed. Night had come pretty cold, and a little occasional breeze that passed like a chill hand laid a moment on the face and went down into the willows. Now and again the water running through the ice would lap and gurgle at some air-hole. Sergeant Kaiser sat by his fire and listened to the lonely bell sounding from the dark. He wished the men would feel more at home with him. With Jack Long, satirical, old, and experienced, they were perfectly familiar, because he was a civilian but to Kaiser, because he had been in command of a battalion, they held the attitude of schoolboys to a master, the instinctive feeling of all privates towards all officers. Jones and Cumner were members of his camp guard. Being just now off post, they stood at the fire, but away from him. "'How do you like this compared with barracks?' the sergeant asked conversationally. "'It's all right,' said Jones. Did you think it was all right that first morning? I didn't enjoy it much myself. Sit down and get warm, won't you?" The men came and stood awkwardly. "'I ain't never found any excitement in getting up early,' said Jones, and was silent. A burning log shifted, and the bell sounded in a new place as the leader pastured along. Jones kicked the log into better position. But this affair's getting interesting, he added. Don't you smoke? Kaiser inquired of Cumner, and tossed him his tobacco pouch. Presently they were seated, and the conversation going better. Arizona was compared with Idaho. Everybody had gone to bed. Arizona's the most outrageous outrage in the United States, declared Jones. Why did you stay there six years, then? said Cumnor. Guess I'd been there yet, but for you coming along, and us both enlistin' that crazy way, Idaho's better. Only, said Jones thoughtfully, coming to an ice-box from a hundred thousand in the shade, it's a wonder a man don't just split like a glass chimbley. 
The willows crackled, and all laid hands on their pistols. "'How! How!' said a strange, propitiating voice. It was a man on a horse, and directly they recognized E Egante himself. They would have raised an alarm, but he was alone, and plainly not running away, nor had he weapons. He rode into the firelight, and, "'How! How!' he repeated anxiously. He looked and nodded at the three who remained seated. "'Good evening,' said the sergeant. "'Christmas is coming,' said Jones amicably. "'How! How!' said Egante. It was all the English he had. He sat on his horse, looking at the men, the camp, the cook-fire, the A-tent, and beyond into the surrounding silence. He started when the bell suddenly jangled near by. The wandering mule had only shifted in towards the camp and shaken his head, but the Indian's nerves were evidently on the sharpest strain. "'Sit down,' said Kaiser, making signs, and at these Egante started suspiciously. "'Warm here,' Jones called to him, and Cumner showed his pipe. The chief edged a thought closer. His intent, brilliant eyes seemed almost to listen as well as look, and though he sat his horse with heedless grace and security, there was never a figure more ready for vanishing upon the instant. He came a little nearer still, alert and pretty as an inquisitive buck antelope, watching not the three soldiers only, but everything else at once. He eyed their signs to dismount, looking at their faces, considered, and with the greatest slowness got off and came stalking to the fire. He was a fine, tall man, and they smiled and nodded at him, admiring his clean blankets and the magnificence of his buckskin shirt and leggings. "'He's a Jim Dandy,' said Cumner. "'You bet the girls think so,' said Jones. "'He gets his pick. For you're a fighter, too, ain't you?' he added to E. Gante. "'How, how?' said that personage, looking at them with grave affability from the other side of the fire. Reassured presently, he accepted the sergeant's pipe, but even while he smoked and responded to the gestures, the alertness never left his eye, and his tall body gave no sense of being relaxed. And so they all looked at each other across their waning embers, while the old pack-mule moved about at the edge of the camp, crushing the crusted snow and pasturing along. After a time Iigante gave a nod, handed the pipe back, and went into his thicket as he had come. His visit had told him nothing. Perhaps he had never supposed it would, and came from curiosity. One person had watched this interview. Sarah the squaw sat out in the night, afraid for her ancient hero. But she was content to look upon his beauty and go to sleep after he had taken himself from her sight. The soldiers went to bed, and Kaiser lay wondering for a while before he took his nap between his surveillances. The little breeze still passed at times, the running water and the ice made sounds together, and he could hear the wandering bell, now distant on the hill, irregularly punctuating the flight of the dark hours. By nine next day there was the thicket sure enough. 
and the forty waiting for the three hundred to come out of it. Then it became ten o'clock, but that was the only difference, unless perhaps Sarah the squaw grew more restless. The troopers stood ready to be told what to do, joking together in low voices now and then. Crook sat watching Glenn smoke, and through these stationary people walked Sarah, looking wistfully at the thicket, and then at the faces of the adopted race she served. She hardly knew what was in her own mind. Then it became eleven, and Crook was tired of it, and made the capping move in his bluff. He gave the orders himself. Sergeant! Kaiser saluted. You will detail eight men to go with you into the Indian camp. The men are to carry pistols under their overcoats and no other arms. You will tell the Indians to come out. Repeat what I said to them last night. Make it short. I'll give them ten minutes. If they don't come by then, a shot will be fired out here. At that signal you will remain in there and blaze away at the Indians. So Kaiser picked his men. The thirty-one remaining troopers stopped joking and watched the squad of nine and the interpreter file down the banks to visit the three hundred. The dingy overcoats and the bright green shawl passed into the thicket, and the general looked at his watch. Along the bend of the stream clear noises tinkled from the water and the ice. "'What are they up to?' whispered a teamster to Jack Long. Long's face was stern but the Teamsters was chalky and tight-drawn. "'Say,' he repeated insistently, "'what are we going to do?' "'We're to wait,' Long whispered back, "'till nothing happens, and then the old man'll fire a gun and signal them boys to shoot in there.' "'Oh, it's to be waitin,' said the Teamster. He fastened his eyes on the thicket, and his lips grew bloodless. The running river sounded more plainly. Blank, blanket! cried the man desperately. Let's start the fun, then. He whipped out his pistol, and Jack Long had just time to seize him and stop a false signal. Why, you must be skeered, said Long. I've a mind to beat your skull in. Waitin' so awful, whimpered the man. I wished I was along with them in there. Jack gave him back his revolver. There, he said. You're not skeered, I see. Waitin' ain't nice. The eight troopers with Kaiser were not having anything like so distasteful a time. Jock, said Specimen Jones to Cumner, as they followed the sergeant into the willows and began to come among the lodges and striped savages, you and me has saw injuns before, Jock. And we'll do it again, said Cumner. Kaiser looked at his watch. Four minutes gone. Jones, said he, you patrol this path to the right so you can cover that gang there. There must be four or five lodges down that way. Cumner, see that dugout with side thatch and roofing of Thule? You attend to that family. It's a big one, all brothers. Thus the sergeant disposed his men quietly and quick through the labyrinth till they became invisible to each other and all the while flights of Indians passed half-seen among the tangle, fleeting visions of yellow and red through the quiet-colored twigs. Others squatted stoically, doing nothing. A few had guns, but most used arrows, 
and had these stacked beside them where they squatted. Kaiser singled out a somewhat central figure, Furcap was his name, as his starting point if the signal should sound. It must sound now in a second or two. He would not look at his watch, lest it should hamper him. Furcap sat by a pile of arrows, with a gun across his knees besides. Kaiser calculated that by standing close to him as he was, his boot would catch the Indian under the chin just right and save one cartridge. Not a red man spoke, but Sarah the squaw dutifully speechified in a central place where paths met near Kaiser and Furcap. Her voice was persuasive and warning. Some of the savages moved up and felt Kaiser's overcoat. They fingered the hard bulge of the pistol underneath and passed on, laughing, to the next soldier's coat, while Sarah did not cease to harangue. The tall, stately man of last night appeared. His full, dark eye met Sarah's, and the woman's voice faltered, and her breathing grew troubled as she gazed at him. Once more Kaiser looked at his watch. Seven minutes. Iigante noticed Sarah's emotion, and his face showed that her face pleased him. He spoke in a deep voice to Furcap, stretching a fringed arm out towards the hill with a royal gesture, at which Furcap rose. "'He will come! He will come!' said the squaw, running to Kaiser. "'They all come now. Do not shoot!' "'Let them show outside, then,' thundered Kaiser, "'or it's too late. If that gun goes before I can tell my men. He broke off and rushed to the entrance. There were skirmishers deploying from three points, and Crook was raising his hand slowly. There was a pistol in it. General! General! Kaiser shouted, waving both hands. No! Behind him came Iigante with Sarah, talking in low tones, and Furcap came too. The general saw and did not give the signal. The sight of the skirmishers hastened Iigante's mind. He spoke in a loud voice, and at once his warriors began to emerge from the willows obediently. Crook's bluff was succeeding. The Indians, in waiting after nine, were attempting a little bluff of their own. But the unprecedented visit of nine men appeared to them so dauntless that all notion of resistance left them. They were sure Gray Fox had a large army. And they came and kept coming, and the place became full of them. The troopers had all they could do to form an escort and keep up the delusion, but by degrees order began and the column was forming. Riding along the edge of the willows came Iigante, gay in his blankets, and saying, How! How! to Kaiser, the only man at all near him. The pony ambled and sidled, paused, trotted a little, and Kaiser was beginning to wonder, when all at once a woman in a green shawl sprang from the thicket, leaped behind the chief, and the pony flashed by and away, round the curve. Kaiser had lifted his carbine, but forbore, for he hesitated to kill the woman. Once more the two appeared, diminutive and scurrying, the green shawl bright against the hillside they climbed. Sarah had been willing to take her chances of death with her hero, 
and now she vanished with him among his mountains, returning to her kind, and leaving her wedded white man and half-breeds forever. "'I don't feel so mad as I ought,' said Specimen Jones. Crook laughed to Glenn about it. "'We've got a big balance of em, he said, if we can get em all to Boise. They'll probably roast me in the East.' And they did. Hearing how forty took three hundred, but let one escape, and a few more on the march home, the superannuated cattle of the War Department sat sipping their drink at the club in Washington, and explained to each other how they would have done it. And so the general's bluff partly failed. Iigante kept his freedom, all along at that year pies and squaw, as Mr. Long judiciously remarked. It was not until many years after that the chief's destiny overtook him, and concerning that things both curious and sad could be told. End of section 6